Hello, everybody, and welcome to this next episode of K9's Talking Sense. I'm your host, Cameron Ford, broadcasting out here in Scent City, Las Vegas. On today's episode, I also have co-host Natalie Morris on here. Hi, guys. <laughs> in today's episode, we're going to go and do something a little bit different. This time, we're going to get into the medical detection. And on this episode, I brought in a friend of mine who I've got to meet this past year doing a canine cognition seminar. She has a company called Medical Mutts. Jennifer Kate, thank you for coming on to the show. I know I probably pronounced it a little off, but uh, thank you for coming on here and taking time today to talk about everything medical detection. Yeah, no, you're all good with the pronunciation, but thank you, Cameron, for having me. Oh, my pleasure. And this has been an interesting topic. We get people that will reach out to us from time to time looking to get into medical detection, um, you know, in one shape, form, fashion, or another, uh, sometimes for personal needs or family needs. Um, tell us a little bit about what Medical Mutts is, a little bit about your journey, how you got to where you are, and then we'll just kind of go from there. Okay. Well, um, Medical Mutts is a not-for-profit specialized in uh, selecting dogs from rescues and shelters and training them as medical alert dogs. So we specialize mostly in uh, diabetes detection, seizure detection, and uh, psychiatric uh, purposes. So for what makes all these uh, conditions, uh, the commonality of all these conditions is that for all of them, we use scent. Mm -hmm. And how did you get into this field? How did you find your way into medical detection with dogs? Well, I, I have been working with dogs for a very long time. Uh, I started out in France uh, over 35 plus years ago. I hate to you know, <laughs> think about that far back, but that's, that's the truth. So I've been through a lot of uh, different types of different styles of training. Uh, but when I came back in the U.S. Uh, in the early 2000s, I was lucky enough to be hired as uh, the director of training for a service dog organization that was prison-based. And... Um, in, in during those days, the diabetes alert dogs were starting to become really popular. And so I was asked to develop a training plan, uh, which at the time I had to start from scratch because there was absolutely no sharing of methodology back then. So I, I um, reached out to some trainers. Um, Steve White uh, was one of the trainers I reached out to. So trainers that were in the detection field mm -hmm. because it was not my field at all. Um, and started with a lot of trial and error to figure out how to do this. And it's it's funny you mentioned Steve White. He's one I'm going to have coming on the podcast, hopefully here in the next uh, few episodes. So uh, Natalie's been a fan. She's been reaching out to me like, come on, let's have Steve White on here and, and do that. Um, it, it, you know, it's a definitely a unique field in the sense that it doesn't seem to have as much information out there as there is in the typical detection dog world where there's like tons of information. There's different styles and methodologies mm -hmm. um, other than obviously the numbers behind it. But what do you think has been a hurdle for why information about medical detection is kind of harder to obtain or harder to find? Um, I'm not quite sure. I think there was a lot of secrecy initially when it first started. Um, and, and that was, you know, it made it very difficult to start any kind of program. Um, 
one of the first things that I wanted to do, because I have a research background, is to prove first that there was a smell, that what we were doing was legitimate, mm-hmm. that we were not just, you know, um, doing hocus pocus with the dogs, that, was, yeah. that there was actually a smell. That was the first thing that needed to be proven. Um, so I, you know, collaborated in a research with uh, some friends from uh, Lily here um, to, to demonstrate that there was, in fact, a scent and that the dogs were able to be trained for that. Mm-hmm. Um, we did that for diabetes and for seizures eventually. And since there's been a lot more interest in this field, so we're, we're starting to get data, but there's not a whole lot. And I think a lot of the trainers um, came from the detection field mm-hmm. or, or, you know, just we're trying to figure out how to do this. And so there's so many different methods out there, just even in, in, in sample collection, I see a lot of uh, pretty wild things going on in this in this domain, and there's there's just a lot of information that needs to be put out there. Oh, for sure. Now, tell me a little bit about there. Me and you had talked before when I met you about some of the research you did. Uh, take us down that path a little bit about some of the research you've done already. Um, and obviously I knew that kind of guided you into what you do now, but I'd love for the listeners and the viewers to hear about some of that research and what you guys learned from it. Well, so, um, we, well, this was back, I think in 2015, we, we showed that there is a scent associated for, with diabetes alert. So we did a, a study in prison actually, um, that, with just you know um, samples collected from patients with type one diabetes when they were in a hypoglycemic uh, episode, and the dogs were to find the hypoglycemic samples amongst normal samples, and so what we were able to show is that dogs are indeed very good at detecting it or at identifying the right sample amongst normal samples. Mm-hmm. And then later I replicated that same situation with samples collected from patients with seizures um, with a little bit of a difference that in the normal um, samples, we also collected samples from people who uh, exercised. We tried mm-hmm. to get people to exercise in ways that was reproducing as closely as possible um, the amount of physical energy that would be uh, expressed during a, a uh, grand mal seizure. Mm. So there too, the dogs were, were very successful at showing us that there is a smell, there's definitely a smell, but there's still so much that we don't know. Mm. Uh, we don't know what those VOCs are. Uh, there's some, some studies that have come out that are thinking that there's, they've identified about seven of those um, molecules, but um, I don't really know what they are because I'm not a medical doctor and I don't know that they would have a lot of meaning for for me, but um, that's just the beginning of it. When it comes to the medical detection world, we really don't know what we're doing most of the time. It's a lot of trial and error and trying to figure things out, but we don't have a lot of data. No, for sure. And I'm remiss in not mentioning that you are a doctor. So it's actually Dr. Jennifer Kate. So my apologies for leaving that part off. I know I messed up on that one. I'm just so used to calling you Jennifer. I just, you know, went into my normal friend mode uh, on that one. But you have your PhD. Uh, and that's, you know, a mm-hmm. great thing for people to, to get to, uh, you know, add to your background. Is it not, you're not just like a dog person that fell into this. You, you got into the research and you really did a lot of stuff I- involved in this. Um, Natalie, yeah. do you have any questions so far that you have interest in or that you wanted to ask? 
Um, I mean, I'm really curious about the the seizure alert dogs um, and what the samples that you guys are actually utilizing are and how you obtain those. But um, I'm sure we'll kind of get into that. So yeah, at the moment, nothing uh, particular. Yeah. So talk about a little bit about the seizures. I would love to hear about that. Like how. Well, yeah. And I think seizures, you know, for anybody who's had seizures or been around somebody with seizures, it's a terrible condition that presents a tremendous risk to the person, to the patient, because, you know, think about simple tasks like cooking. If you're going to have a, a grand mal seizure and while you're in the middle of cooking, uh, you can burn yourself, you can burn down your house. I mean, it's just really, really scary. Uh, going up and down stairs uh, is dangerous, not to mention driving or things like that. So um, having dogs able to predict when a seizure is going to occur is, is life-changing for someone. And so we have, I, I work with a group in France uh, that um, has placed now, I think about 30 different seizure alert dogs. Uh, we have been doing it now for about 10 years, uh, training seizure alert dogs also using scent. So we teach the dogs to come and poke their person. So when we use a, a nose poke and different trainers have different styles with when it comes to alert, we use an alert uh, for all of our detection dogs, our alert dogs that is um, silent so that it can be used uh, anywhere. You know, if they're in church or in a mm -hmm. movie theater, they don't necessarily yes. want the dog to mm -hmm. start barking at them. Uh, but they also want something that's going to catch their attention that is really hard to ignore. And so the dogs uh, come and start poking very vigorously with, uh, with their nose and that tells the person that there is a, a very good chance of having a seizure and they, and they can sit down. So how do you guys go about getting these different scent samples in? Are these scent samples unique to that individual? Um, well, the, what we've shown in our research is that uh, dogs can learn with samples from certain patients and absolutely generalize that to samples from other patients. And not only different, different patients, but also different types of seizures, which is oh, wow. even more mind boggling because there, there hasn't, we haven't shown a difference between uh, somebody who has maybe, you know, an absent seizures, seizure that you, most people would hardly even recognize mm -hmm. or a grand mal seizure. So we have dogs, we've placed dogs with the same training methods in hands of people with all sorts of seizures, and it seems to be working quite well. But because we train for different conditions, and we don't really know what, what condition the dog is going to ultimately be placed with and alerting to, uh, we train our dogs from the get-go when they first come to our facility with a soup. Right. And I know you guys are very familiar with that type mm -hmm. of training. Sure. So we train with a soup of, you know, that we we have samples. We have a fridge full of samples from people um, who have diabetes, seizures and, and psychiatric conditions. And we we um, we make a, a mix of those samples and we train the dogs with that. And then once we have identified which person that dog is going to go to, then we specialize that dog to that specific person's samples. And that makes total sense because obviously different in the in the world of i would say your typical detection dogs where there's a lot of chemicals involved um scents and and you guys deal with a, a kind of a crossover you have i would say scent and odor happening depending on certain conditions i would imagine um so having the dog understand um a, that super cocktail aspect 
is critical because there's going to be a few things going on there when it comes to a human being uh, versus sometimes a just straight chemical that we're looking for in a typical detection dog environment. Um, mm -hmm. Now, are these when you guys get these samples to train on? Are these obtained during when someone's having an episode or um, like how does that part even happen? And then I'll get to part two of that question in a second. So I'll go with that one first. <laughs> yeah. So um, it depends on the condition. Um, ideally, you want to collect the samples as closely as possible to the event. Uh, but if you have a seizure, that may be really difficult. You may not be able to collect Correct. a sample until you get out of it. Yeah. Uh, same thing if you're in a panic attack, right? So um, ask our clients to put together a little um, sample collection packet before they have an event and kind of carry that around so mm -hmm. that as soon as they have an event, they can collect it. Yeah, and, it, and I would imagine the dogs, like you said, uh, get very predictive they, they can sense these things or detect these things prior to once they've obviously been trained on it and been around their their handler enough that their proficiency at this skill gets better and better because of uh you know like i said they can almost alert you obviously i know they do before it happens because they're smelling the scent change on their handler and then because of that uh, can start going at indication. But I imagine, you know, that's kind of is hard to train on because like you just mentioned, some of those samples that I know you guys are going to get are, like you said, are after the fact. So mm -hmm. the dog has to get good at detecting this beforehand. So it's really interesting to think it is, is there that much scent coming off the person before the event as there is after the event? Well, that's a really interesting question that um, I'm actually exploring with a few research team right now to figure out or to prove if really there is. But I think so. There's a few few aspects in what you're asking. There, the the first one is um, dogs, as you know, are extremely good at picking up patterns. Mm -hmm. Right? There's a, mm -hmm. there are sequences of events, and because they're really good at that. What happens is when there is an event, and those events are not uh, are emotionally charged, mm -hmm. especially when we're talking about somebody with a seizure or a mm -hmm. panic attack. It's not it's not you know just a neutral event for a dog. They're going to also have some kind of emotional connection to what's going on, and so anything leading to that, as these events repeat, uh, the dog is also going to start picking up on what what is happening before and potentially going to react uh, to those to those markers as well now are there certain regions of the body depending on the type of medical condition that are more i would say productive or target value uh for a dog when it comes to these different types of medical alert type behaviors or things like, like obviously we, we talk about it in detection dog world as a productive area and we mm -hmm. teach handlers to search corners and, you know, certain parts of a car and things like that. Does the human body also have quote unquote productive areas that our dogs are finding as this is a, depending again on the medical aspect, uh, certain areas that are productive more than others? Yeah. So it seems like breath is one of the biggest producer of those, those, uh, VOCs. I mean, it, I mean, it makes sense because you know the the bloodstream, uh, the 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 molecules go into the lungs pretty quickly um, when when we're having something going on with us, and so the the part that is excreted the most easily is through breath. 
Um, then we also notice that there's a lot of emphasis from the dogs on hands. Mm. Okay. sometimes under the arms, but that's less often. Mm -hmm. And so what we use in training for our samples are, we, we try to be as close as possible to what's going to make contact with the dog's nose, right? Yeah. So we do not use saliva. Oh. And we don't advocate using saliva. There's no need to chew on a piece of cotton ball for 10 minutes. <laughs> um, that's rather horrible and sure. unnecessary. Um, but plenty of trainers still do it. And I think it's because... As, as humans, because we cannot pick up that there's scent on a sample, right. uh, we, we need to see something, right? <laughs> yeah. So it, it makes us feel better when we can actually see that the sample is wet. Mm. Um, but we collect a, a mix of skin swab and breath. Okay. In our samples. And how long are these samples typically good for? Like how often do you kind of have to re-up your training aids? So we've noticed that the dogs are fairly accurate for about two weeks, which is really surprising. But we can use one sample for up to two weeks, and then we keep them in the, in the freezer. And so when we receive them, we keep them in the freezer and then just take one sample at a time that we'll use for two weeks. Okay. And um, so in your guys' aspect, freezing it is an important aspect. How has thermal changes uh, make a difference because obviously the human body being, you know, 98.6 degrees, um, and then you have something in the refrigerator. How long do you have to, do, you have, do dogs know the difference? Are they good enough to pick up the difference between something that was colder than the body versus, or do you guys have to actually heat it up to be typical to what our body temperatures are? No, we don't. And you know, th this is an area where we really don't know much and there's so much that we have to learn. Um, I, I don't actually know if freezing them has any kind of value as much as keeping them in a sealed uh, oh. container with not too much air around them, right? Sure. Um, but we, I guess we feel better when they're frozen and we know that we can pull them out six months later, a year later, and we mm -hmm. can still use them. So we know that they, they keep rather well. Um, I think the one time that it really blew my mind was when um, the – the uh, hospital in France collected the samples for the seizure study mm -hmm. and sent them over to us. Well, it was in the middle of Christmas and they took about a month to get to us. So think about a month spending, you know, on airfare and in, you know, all sorts of mail <laughs> transportation. And they got to us. We were a little bit worried, but <laughs> no, they were absolutely fine. The dogs were able to use them. Wow. I know Natalie has uh, a question she's going to ask. So. Yeah, um, you know, I was just talking to actually one of our gold members on their their Zoom call the other day, and we were talking about the medical detection dogs and what a kind of a special dog that is to need to be able to do the the public service aspect of a service dog, but also have the independence and kind of that the confidence of a of a detection dog. So for you guys, what does that selection process look like, and how do you kind of balance out those two needs um, with your medical alert dogs? So we look for dogs, and you're right to bring that up, because not every dog can do this. A lot right. of dogs can learn the skills. So, you know, most dogs can absolutely learn how to, to detect, uh, to discriminate this, the scent that we're, that we're targeting. But um, where the selection process really is, is in their ability to manage going out in public. 
mm-hmm. and navigate in public spaces around crowds and, and noises and, and all sorts of distractions without getting anxious. And that's the big key. If the dog is going to be anxious about their own safety, they, they won't be able to pick up on right. changes in their person's physiology. Right. right. So we're looking for dogs that are very confident, easygoing, very social, that are not going to be uh, phased out by people reaching out and petting them because that is going to happen when yeah. you take dogs in public. Um, and then super food motivated. All of our training is oh, okay. done positive reinforcement. So the dogs have to be willing to let go of everything that they're doing and even wake up at night uh, to go and alert a person. So uh, we, we definitely uh, also uh, select dogs that are, that are a bit crazy about treats. Uh-huh. <laughs> I was just that the aspect of uh, needing to wake up, uh, you know, cause you talk to people with service dogs, like they can't be on the job absolutely 24 7 right or or will that detection aspect of them being able to read that like actually wake them up to go into indication and and do you guys have to specifically kind of work on that like that hey nighttime can still be productive kind of thing so yeah so the first thing is they're not on the job 24 Uh 7 they are mostly hanging around you know their their person being part of the family playing snuggling and all of that and then um you know, the VOCs hit their their nostrils, bang, uh-huh. uh, they have an emotional reaction right, to it, yeah. and they go into work mode. Okay. The, the night alerts are a, that's a very different aspect of our training because it is different to uh-huh. have to wake up to a smell and perform in the middle of the night. Right. So that's a lot more work and it takes work from uh, our clients to do that um, because when we're we're talking about just waking up from a smell. Uh, so it's, it's, uh, it's like asking a dog to sit, even the most performing dog, if you ask them to sit while they're in, they're in the middle of a, of a sleep cycle, that's not likely to happen. So, um, you know, the, the smell is a cue for the dog to get up, wake up and go and perform. But to get them to do that during, you know, the middle of the night takes uh, quite a few, quite a lot of effort from, yeah. their, from their people. Interesting. Yeah, yeah, it really is. And as we're doing this, there's like a hailstorm going on outside <laughs> our window. I don't know if you can oh, hear no. it. Yeah, I mean, it, it, not to get a sidetrack, but all, but Vegas has been going through quite the monsoon season, which is great because we need water like crazy out here. But only as we're sitting here listening to you talk, I was like, <laughs> what is that I keep hearing outside the window? And then it kept getting harder and harder. And I'm like, I had to get up for a second and go, oh my gosh, it's actually hailing outside right now. So I wonder what our cars are going to look like here in a minute. Okay. So not to get completely off track, but uh, with, um, you know, like you said, you you bring up some really interesting aspects that the dogs have to do perform. You can really hear it now (laughs) as soon as I start talking. Um, The, yeah, the, Training wise, so go through like some of the initial things that you have to get the dog used to doing in training uh, as they start this journey to become a medical detection dog. And do you do things differently between, let's say, a seizure alert dog versus a diabetic alert dog? Well, the the big difference is that seizure, for most people, um, they don't necessarily need to be woken up for a seizure. Sometimes parents need to be alerted when their child oh, right. has a seizure, and so they might need night alerts. But 
Um, most of the time, it's okay if somebody has a seizure through the night and just keeps, keeps sleeping. Oh, they're already it. kind of in a safe spot. Yes, exactly. They're already kind of in a safe spot. Um, it's the people who struggle with type 1 diabetes who really need to know if they're having a, a drop in their glucose mm -hmm. levels in the middle of the night. And they need to be alerted mm -hmm. um, pretty quickly and, and sometimes vigorously because they may be a little out of it too as they wake up to do what, what they need to do uh, to get their glucose levels back in order. Yeah, it's, I mean, super fascinating, you know, aspects and so many dynamics that are totally different than the world that we typically come from when it comes to our detection, which is, you know, there's things, you know, I don't know, I don't say we can control better, but not necessarily. No, you can. I think that's a great point, Cameron. I, I yeah. want to bring that up too, because yeah. I don't think a lot of people realize this, but see, when you're, when you're working with a detection dog, and, and I, this is just inference because I've never worked with a de detection dog, sure. but I'm assuming that when you go into a, a specific location, the dog uh, indicates the location of, of whatever substance it's been trained for. That's the end of it. Mm -hmm. Yes. You, you, yes, we're done. You the behavior right. yeah. and then you're done, you're out. Yeah. Well, in the medical field, especially when the dog belongs to a person with a condition, well, that smell doesn't go away. Mm. Yeah. Okay. Right? You have, you have uh, your glucose levels drop. Well, they don't drop in a few minutes. Sometimes they take a while to drop or mm. sometimes they, they stay high for a long time. Yeah. So we have to worry about desensitization. Right. So um, what, how, how often those, those events occur is a problem. We have to, you know, somebody who's got seizures, for instance, 20 times a day or seizures once a year, that's going to have an impact on the dog's performance. Yeah. Um, somebody who stays high in a hypoglycemic, hyperglycemic uh, uh, condition all night is going to be a problem because now you have the dog that is sleeping in a room that is you know, filled with those VOCs all, for hours and hours. So yeah. all, of the, all of those situations that, that complicate um, how well the dog can perform over time. So it's really easy when we're working with samples, yeah. but then when you place a dog with a person, there's so many variables that uh, to, to keep the performance high is not always easy. So that brings up a big point. What constitutes or how frequently do you have dogs that wash out because of some of these super unique conditions that they have to go through? Well, it's, it doesn't happen as often now as it used to. So we have gotten better at identifying the, uh, the type of clients that could be served by a service dog. So if somebody tells us that their glucose levels, for instance, are not well managed and they might stay high for, oh. for long hours, uh, we're going to look at their, we're going to ask for their, their um, glucose curves and we're going to take a really strong look at that and see if it's even possible to place the dog with them mm -hmm. um, same with seizures we're going to look at how many seizures we right now we ask for at least a seizure a month mm -hmm. um, but uh but too many seizures is also a problem yeah. and then um in france we ran into a situation where uh the person was having a lot of seizures but she also had one of those um vagal nerve simulation that stopped the seizure before it occurred. Okay. So then what do you do with the dog? Because you can't tell when the, the, the dog was alerting all the time, but they were perceived as, as false alerts. Mm. Yeah. How, how do you know? Like, how do you confirm that they're 
you know, how, that it's a it's a true alert if the seizure is is interrupted and oh, never yeah. happened. Interesting. So, no, that's yeah. so many different dynamics to deal with, right? Yeah, I was going to ask too. Um, I imagine that most of your seizure seizure alert dogs are also seizure response dogs. Yeah. Right. So then they have to kind of go from, you know, indi indicating that there's going to be a seizure to now responding to, you know, the person physically and kind of switch modes um, a little bit as well. Is that a big training aspect that you guys um, I imagine you're training them, every, you know, everything is separate and you start adding it together once the dog is getting more proficient. Yeah, so that's true for, for all three of the conditions. We, we spend a lot of time interviewing the person and talking, asking them what they currently do to help themselves or to get help uh, once they have a seizure or once they're, um, you know, uh, having an anxiety attack. Right. And, and then we, so the dogs are trained to alert and then to go into help mode. Mm -hmm. So for every person that's going to look a little bit different. For a lot of people with seizures, the dogs are going to lay right next to them or on top of them, um, providing some kind of uh, support sometimes or, mm -hmm. or, or preventing some of the, the mm -hmm. uh, jerky movements that mm -hmm. they might do. But also, it's they're, they're, they help the person calm down because it's, it's rather scary when you start uh, coming out of a seizure. A lot of people are very confused and, they, and the, having the dog... The dog's presence and, and warmth and, and uh, weight there right next to them helps them sure, feel yeah. a little bit better and, and come out of it. But then the dogs can also go get another person, press a button to, you know, we have uh, high-tech buttons now that the dog's going to go press that are going to call somebody else. They can get medication. They can get a drink. Uh, they can help physically help the person get up. Uh, they can help the person turn on their side also if they tend to regurgitate. Mm. Oh, mm -hmm. yeah. No, it's, and the, I guess you, you kind of brought up another thing we have to consider, which is the human aspect of this. Um, you know, you brought up a few things about it, but how do you guys go about selecting a, the right person to have a dog with this kind of capability? What kind of screening do you guys have to kind of go through or do you, and, and how do you, you know, make a successful pairing? Well, that's the hard part. It's it's really like matchmaking, right? Yeah, <laughs> um, for sure. So we we have uh, an application that they have to fill out that with questions regarding their health condition or their their condition in general, um, their living situation. You know, do they have other pets? What's their experience with dogs? What are their expectations? And then there's an interview. And I have to say, a lot of time during the interview, we almost try to discourage people from getting a dog, meaning we, we don't paint a, a pretty picture of having mm -hmm. a dog. We, yeah. we paint a picture of, of as realistic as possible yeah. with all of the constraints and, and hardships that is going to that are going to happen. Because, you know, for somebody, for instance, with a psychiatric condition, and a lot of people are have social anxieties, for instance, and they have a really hard time going to the store. Um, you know, and just doing simple things that we don't even think about. So they're relying on a dog to help them feel safer so that they can do those things. Well, the downside of that is when you go out in the store with a dog, you attract a lot of attention. Mm -hmm. So you're no longer a person just walking through a store and minding your own, own business. Now you have people staring at you, people asking you questions, people making comments. And so 
this has the potential to increase your anxiety. And it's very mm -hmm. hard for the person and for us to know whether that dog is going to be a help mm -hmm. or an extra burden. Mm -hmm. so we, we talk that over with them and we encourage them to even potentially test that out with certain dogs and, and you know, see how it feels to walk around even a, you know, a hardware store, or sure. a, a store where dogs are allowed to go, um, you know, to see whether that would be problematic for them or not. Um, but the other aspect is just the work, the amount of work. It's like I, I equate it a lot as having a, a child. Yeah, you know, I was just going to say that. Right. You know, it's going to be work. You know, you're going to not sleep certain nights, but you really don't know what it's like until you have the baby. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Having a service dog is the same way. You may have had pets before, but now this dog is going to require you to learn a lot. You know, you're going to spend 10 days with us, but that's just the beginning. It's yeah. going to take about six months for that team to really learn how to work together. And during those six months, it's going to feel like hard work. There's a lot of adaptation and that some most of the time, fortunately, it goes well, but sometimes it's just too much and then we'll take the dog back. Yeah, I was thinking, you know, one of the difficult things or I, I say this all the time to my handlers that come through for like the professional side of things is, hey, congratulations, you now have a three year old child. So yeah, exactly. it, it always needs attention. You got to do all the things, take care of, you know, it, it needs to be fed, cleaned up, all those things. And um, it, it's not always as fun as it seems to be, you know, obviously there's people who love doing it. That's awesome. But I think sometimes like you brought up is it's also an awakening for some like, holy cow, I didn't know there was this much I had to deal with or this much to do. Um, and, you know, like you said, dealing with individuals who have anxiety, dogs always draw attention, always draw people over. And depending on, I would say, levels or the reason for PTSD and things like that, that's definitely got to be a concerning aspect to make sure that can they, even though as awesome as a dog is for them, that dog will also, like you said, bring them more attention, which could create some difficulties or some stressful uh, incidents to go through. So, Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And, and they may not even, because, you know, it's like when you want to buy a, a really fancy car, and you fall in love with that car and you think, you think of all the positive things that you're going to experience driving that car. Yeah. But then you buy the car and you're in it and well, it needs gas and it needs, you know, it's, it's, after a while it's just a car. Well, sometimes dogs, we, we have this idea of service dogs because they are, they have been, I guess we see a lot of them and we have expectations of service dogs to be almost like perfect dogs. Mm -hmm dogs with all the needs that they have and so when people sometimes are faced with the re reality of hey they're a dog they have they're like a uh you know a person that might have gone to to college and have really <laughs> they know a lot of stuff but they're still a person they still you know eat and go to the bathroom like uh -huh. everybody else right so yeah. yeah that sometimes is a you can you can um think about it and tell yourself all those things, but it's not always the same as experiencing it, you know, when you're faced with the, with the reality of it. Yeah. And I wanted to go into this one. So the dogs that are there for people with PTSD, um, there, I think there's two components you're dealing with. One is, you know, I guess the level of PTSD because that has a scale to it as well. Um, and then, you know, obviously I come being a former, you know, military member, there's a lot of, from the service community, 
uh, I say the military service community that have benefited from dogs. How do you guys go through that? Because like I said, there's different aspects of PTSD. And then just a curiosity question, is PTSD uh, sent samples pretty much the same thing as the diabetic and seizure? It's based off of uh, skin and like levels in our, our, our body giving off a particular type of scent or odor? Yes, so we, we collect all of our samples the same way, um, but they're just labeled a little differently. So we have a fridge full of samples that say um, fear, anger. You know, we oh, have okay. a, a very interesting uh, collection in there. Uh, but yes, they're, they're, they are collected the same way. Okay. And then one of the aspects with PTSD that we have to concern ourselves always when, when considering a person is, um, is the dog in danger? Mm-hmm. Right. Yep. Yeah. We, do, we don't want, if the dog is um, hurt in any kind of way, oh, first of all, it's not, not cool for the dog. Mm-hmm. Um, also, that dog may not want to do its job again. Next time the person is of having a, an anxiety attack, that dog is out the door and hiding somewhere else. So they, they can no longer perform. And in training, I guess you guys have to mimic this in some way or recreate this. I mean, I would imagine the selection for a dog to be a dog for assistance of PTSD is very different in some ways than the dogs for seizures and diabetic. Is there like a scale of, hey, this dog's probably really good for PTSD. This dog over here is good for diabetic. Do you guys have that? And how do you guys deal with that aspect? Yeah, we do. So what we found is um, dogs that came from rescues and shelters are sometimes a little bit more sensitive because of where they've come from. And they they bond to their new person um, in, in very, very strongly. Mm-hmm. And we select dogs that we call uh, the Velcro dogs, meaning yep. they follow you everywhere, sometimes including to the bathroom. Yeah. Um, and we need those types of dogs because they're the ones that are going to pick up on a change in your physiology. Right. But mm-hmm. at the same time, that sensitivity could be difficult if they're dealing with somebody with emotional issues, because they're also going to be very sensitive and pick up on those emotions. And they may have that may trigger anxiety in the dog. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. We're, we're looking for those rare dogs that have that uh, that are very in tune with their person that are not going to, you know, lay over in a different corner and go, ah, you're having another one of your attacks. I'm yeah. going to stay over here. Uh, we want those dogs to show concern and to, to show up and be there and take initiative and, and do their work. Uh, but we don't want them to be so uh, emotional that they that they can't perform. And now they're starting to be afraid of the same things that the person is afraid of. Mm. Yeah, I would imagine that would definitely be like a antecedent cue kind of thing that would start to happen depending on the dog. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Yes. Yes. Very much so. The so as we as we're learning kind of recapping is you guys kind of you select the dogs and then you kind of through your selection process see the dogs that might be best fit for each type of uh, medical condition then you start training these dogs and then during the training are you i guess i would imagine you're moving that target item of scent or odor to different parts of a, a trainer's body or um, whoever is obviously working with the dogs, uh, or you're like, obviously for us, we call them training aids, but your <laughs> training aids go on people. So you got to have obviously a number of different people. And are you moving these targets around their bodies under different types of clothing? 
um, are these things that you guys do, are doing throughout your training? Yeah, so part of the training is very similar to what you guys do in detection, and then towards the end, we, we differ. So our, our dogs go through three stages of training, three levels. Each one of those levels is sanctioned by a, by a, a test. Um, in the first level, they, we teach them the indication behavior. Okay. Um, in the second level, they do discrimination. So mm-hmm. now they're on a lineup, and mm-hmm. they have to find the sample amongst other samples, amongst normals. And then at the same time, we teach them the alert behavior, which is different for us than the indication behavior. Gotcha. Um, because the indication is going to only be uh, valid when we do the discrimination task, but then we don't use it anymore. Mm. And we'll switch over. Uh, oh. Once we have, once the dogs discriminate, we will pair the scent with the with the uh, alert behavior, which okay. is the poke. What and is your uh, indication behavior? Um, we ask them to stand over the right can. Mm. Yeah, with their nose right over the right can. We used to do a sit. We've gotten away from that because since the alert is right. a nose poke, we tried to make it as close as possible. Yeah, that to makes total sense. Yeah. Now, so this is something that comes up quite a bit now or coming up more frequently in the typical detection dog world. How often do you guys have to also run blank runs throughout the training? So the dog gets used to constantly, you know, saying I I live in an environment where I'm not getting a target frequently and it doesn't think for lack of better terms, as Dr. Nathan Hall will say, the vending machine's broken, you know, um, where you're actually creating that slot machine randomized effect. How do you guys deal with this? Because this is obviously a very unique aspect and completely unpredictable and with lots of blank time. How do you guys deal with that? Yeah. So um, we, it's a bit different than what you guys do in the sense that the discrimination part is just a short period for us. It's mm-hmm. just to make sure that the dogs are accurately identifying the scent, right? The, mm-hmm. the target scent. Once we move that odor to the to the person, now the person the the difficulty is for the trainer to not um, start staring at the dog so they plant <laughs> the smell on them, right? Uh-huh. But now they have to be very careful that they're not like looking at the dog a certain way or, or putting the sample you know right in front of the dog's nose or acting just acting weird. Mm-hmm. And if they do. Well, we'll ask them to act weird at other times too, yeah. right? Yeah, they have to mix things up a little bit. So in that sense, it's a little bit the same as what you have to, to go through. Um, yeah, as you say, it's a whole different level of cueing. Right, yeah, it's got to be so much easier to cue your dog when they're paying, their whole job is to pay attention to you. Yeah. <laughs> yes. And then the, the challenges we have is when you have diabetes, now we're going to ask you to test yourself more often because – it's one thing when you're working with a sample, yeah. but when you're working with the invisible and you are not aware, you have a dog because you're not aware mm-hmm. of that, that condition, right? That you're, that you're about to have an episode. And so when you're diabetic, you can start testing yourself a little bit more often so that at least when you, when you are starting to have a, a glucose, a change in your glucose levels, you can engage the dog and help the dog uh, work through that. Because we do know that there's a big difference. Just again, I know that this is similar to what you experience. What's on a sample and what's oh yeah, the full body are two different yeah. things, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So to help the dog transition from sample to live event sometimes takes a little bit. But the challenge here is that the person has to know. 
So when we're dealing with seizure dogs, now we, we ask that uh, there's an aid that the person lives with somebody oh, okay. else so that that other person can can help the dog develop that alert, even if it's during a seizure, but at least mm. they're associating that that smell that now is so much more potent than the sample with the alert. Um, same thing with PTSD. If you are having a panic attack, you know, it's one thing to practice with your dog with a sample when you're when everything is good and you're in your living room, right. it's a whole different bargain when you're you're going through your anxiety and now you have to get the dog to work because you don't want to, uh, you know, you, every episode is a, not only a training opportunity, but you don't want to let them go because otherwise now you're desensitizing the dog, right? Right. Yeah. No, super interesting. I'm getting a flash flood warning. I think you are getting it too. <laughs> Our phone started going off and I have it on do not disturb. I tell you how important it was. Um, so now with the advent of technology with wearables, um, you know, there's always in the detection dog world, the comparison of how long until, you know, uh, technology catches up to a dog's nose and certain aspects. And I, in traditional detection, the way that we're talking about it, that it's something I think we're still a ways off, but something that's wearable and in the medical aspect, how quickly is technology catching up to a dog's capability in that warning of a person that something or one of these things is about ready to happen, especially if we can identify the specific chemicals involved in what's happening? I think in the diabetes field, we're very close to that. Yeah. It's very likely that in the next five years, diabetes alert dogs will be obsolete. Okay. Um, now, they do still have a function of, um, you know, just helping the pe the person feel safer. And so there's a psychological aspect of having a dog that technology will never replace. And I don't think we should minimize that aspect because yeah. a lot of people with diabetes are, are bullied, are, you know, feel different. There There's there's a lot of stigma that goes along with being diabetic and the dog is, is there to, to help with that aspect. Uh, but in, in terms of the alert the, itself, I think we're going to have tools that we just don't have right now that are going to be uh, as good or better than the dogs. Yeah. Um, when it comes to seizures and psychiatric condition, we're still very far from that. Yeah. And, you know, the thing you have to have with technology, though, is you have to be wearing it for it to be effective. So like you said, I, I kind of from the research and things that I had seen too, uh, spot on what you said that the diabetic aspect is probably the one that's the most in danger of dogs not really having as strong as a purpose because of you know, your phone, your uh, watch, whatever you'll have on you uh, can give you a heads up that you need to make a change. Um, but for sure, the psychiatric aspect is unpredictable. And, yes. and yeah. I think there's still, like you said, so much that we're learning about that. There's so much still to discover that technology is going to take a while to catch up where the dog is intuitive and I think not only is it maybe a scent odor type of thing, but also maybe a behavioral thing that a person is doing that a dog could probably pick up on that That's obviously right. technology. Yeah, and then, you know, just the, the the aspect of, you know, we talked about the grocery store earlier. If you are managing a dog in the grocery store, 
you may pick up on some of the, the um, triggers that, mm-hmm. you know, that are difficult for you to live with, but then you, you have to go back to your dog because yeah. you're managing your dog. You can't right. just be in your, your own head and forget about the dog. You have to continuously uh, check in and make sure that the dog is doing okay, is not in the way of other people. And so just that aspect helps the person stay a little bit more in the moment mm-hmm. and, and prevents um, a lot of the, a lot of the emotional uh, issues that might occur. Now in the, you know, aspect of time. So you, you got a dog, you've selected it to do any one of these different types of uh, medical detection. How long does it typically is the training process from when you start the dog on whatever piece it is, diabetic, um, seizure, or let's say um, psychiatric, how is, obviously I'm going to imagine, are they relatively the same? Are they drastically different in time frame? how long it takes? How long is the dog part? And then how long is it when you pair it with a human? So the dog part for all three is, is about the same. The, where they are different is that it, there are fewer dogs that can do the psychiatric. It is therefore more difficult to find them. Mm. But the training itself um, is is pretty pretty similar. Um, it takes us about six to eight months mm. for each dog. That's how long they stay at our facility. Then um, we have our clients come for ten days to work with them, and then after that, we we expect about six months uh, for the for the dogs to be able to really and the person to work together. Yeah, I was going to say that's the part that would. Yeah, and then there's of course follow up. Like we we don't stop following no. our team. Yeah. There's there's monthly check-ins and then yearly check-ins so it's it's an ongoing thing because you're basically training them you know within that 10 days i imagine to be able to do all of the training to maintain everything yes and it and we only do 10 days because it's it's a lot yeah it's, mm-hmm. clients. it's a lot of material that we're really right. cramming can only heads. absorb so much you know, they have to develop mechanics and mm-hmm. you know how long that takes yeah. the, the mechanical skills uh that's that's not an easy part and most most people are just at the beginning of it when they leave yeah um, that's... so yeah we try to we encourage them to read and to get so we we have a, a website with a whole lot of material for them to to go back to with videos and, and oh, awesome teaching tools I was going to say, we run through the same thing. And I know me and you talked about that, Jennifer, before, which was uh, you and I were talking about like the problem is getting people to be able to stay long enough to do mm-hmm. the amount of training that you have to do. Mm-hmm. And you have to break it off, obviously, in chunks. So that way, one, like like Natalie just said, is digestible where you can actually you know absorb it and start doing it because uh, obviously, and then depending on the medical condition, you know, they probably need to be near uh, mm-hmm. you know, family, doctors, et cetera. So that that's oh, another yeah. reason why they can't be too far away or out for too long. Um, you know, tons of dynamics here that come into oh, play. Yeah. And, and fatigue, you know, if you, mm. if, if you're dealing with a psychiatric condition and it takes a lot for you to be in a classroom situation oh, and yeah. learn, you know, you may have memory issues, you may be on medication mm-hmm. that are going to affect your, your retention and, and your ability to, uh, to follow instruction. I mean, things like that are also, uh, you know, get in the way of, of people learning effectively. You just brought up something. You made me think of a question. So if somebody 
do you guys have to proof through medications as well? Like samples having, um, you know, an off gassing effect from the medication they're taking versus ones that don't. Well, you know, it might be smart, but the real, the reality is we don't know. Oh, okay. We have no data on that. So we, we kind of go from the, the standpoint that all that is noise that mm. we yeah. expect our dogs to filter through that and yep. just focus on the VOCs. Yeah. It is super interesting. I mean, it's like, there's so many different like rabbit holes you could go down depending <laughs> yeah. on the conditions that are, are out there. And, you know, and then just the dynamic between human and dog to go through. That's another one that I think of is, is super difficult. Uh, you know, hats off to you guys for you know doing all of this stuff, knowing that there's the number of hurdles that are out there and, you know, uh, you know, there's obviously huge rewards when you see it pay off. So I imagine that is a lot of the things that drive you, correct? Or, you know, it's true. Yes. I don't, I, I can't really express the feeling of watching a dog that you've trained and a person that you, you know, that came to you for help because they're, they're struggling with some real difficult issues in life. And, and now you watch them thrive together I mean, especially when it's a dog that came out of uh, out of a shelter. You know, yeah. you've seen you've seen the condition that the dog was in. You know a little bit of the. Sometimes we don't know, but uh, you know, sometimes you can tell that the dog was, uh, you know, in desperate need of a of a home, and you watch them really uh, develop together. It's it's fantastic. But the flip side of that is when it doesn't work well. See, sometimes, mm. especially with with patients with psychiatric conditions. Um, their their tolerance for for change and for, they're not always very adaptable right life is already really hard for them and they sometimes feel victims of the world when if the expectations are not in line with reality sometimes it makes it more difficult because the dog's not going to be perfect yeah especially in the beginning right when the the relationships are are just starting. Uh, the dog is in a new environment mm-hmm. with a new person, trying to adapt mm-hmm. to all the changes in their routine. Yeah, and so sometimes uh, it takes a lot of reframing and a lot of patience with the clients to to explain that hey, this is a process. Yeah, and it's, there's going to be a lot of ups and downs, and even though it's hard, you have to hang in there. Um, you know, and push through. So that aspect sometimes is complicated. Sure. Sorry. No. I downstairs. <laughs> no worries. <laughs> it's, it, which I, again, at the end of the day, which makes it so rewarding when it does come to fruition. And like you said, it's a win-win. The dogs that came from shelters uh, matched up with their right handler and that handler benefits from that relationship and that skill that mm-hmm. that dog provides to them really, really awesome that it's a win-win situation. And again, you know, individuals such as yourself and the other programs that are out there that do these kind of things, um, you know, providing the service for both the dogs and the people, I, I love it. It's so admirable. And I can't thank you 
enough for doing this kind of thing for those of us out here who need these type of dogs and this beautiful relationship we can have with dogs that really help us out and, and make a difference better than sometimes any machine ever could. Yeah. And I think we need to remember that um, we do what we do because the dogs have shown us that they're capable of doing this. Yes. Right. All of the, all of the scent work that we're doing in the medical field, the dogs showed us first. Yeah. We didn't come up with that. And right. I think we, we owe a lot of, we, we have to stay humble with what we're doing because a lot of this is, as I said, is just trial and error because we don't understand a lot of it, but it really comes down to the dogs not only having an amazing nose, but also um, having a, a really high ability to problem solve yes. and, and figure out situations and, and a very strong desire to help their person. I, so all of those combined, yeah. you know, make a really, really successful service dog. It, it just made me think of a question. Is there any breed or breed type that seems to be more successful? I mean, obviously, let's say canine canine campaigns for independence. Their dogs are mostly Labradors or Golden Retrievers. You got your Fab Five. Yeah. Um, is there service dogs? Yeah. Is there any like top breeds that are gravitated towards because of this work? Yeah, absolutely. Um, now, there's not one breed that you can go to and say, oh, yeah, th these dogs, if you just take a dog that breed, they're going to be a good service dog. That doesn't exist. But that's true in your in your field of work. Yes, too, right? yes. Um, the English labs definitely have a, uh, a higher number of dogs from that breed that can be successful. I, I think they're by far the best ones. Okay. And golden retrievers, mm -hmm. um, they have shoes they have sensitive they're they're rather sensitive dogs um they also have some behavioral issues mm. um that that sometimes get in the way i know that we don't like to see golden retrievers that way but they do they have uh resource guarding mm. issues uh -huh. uh, you know there's there's a lot of cancer in the breed also mm. um the golden lab mixes are mm -hmm. really good also when you can yeah. have one of those yeah shepherds are Unfortunately, on the decline yeah. in the service dog world, they seem to be too, a um, little too anxious, yeah, a little too sensitive. Mm -hmm. They don't work as well for PTSD because of that. Yeah, love the breed. The super smart dogs are great to you know. The connection you can have with a German Shepherd is fantastic, but as service dogs, they're just not as versatile. Yeah, no. I mean, and, and what you bring up is some of the aspects that have changed from the breeding, the genetics mm -hmm. that have changed now uh, within the shepherd breed because of different reasons and selective breeding for other purposes and so forth. So now the pool has changed for what we can yeah. get our hands on. And we see that all the time in the other detection realms too. So obviously it goes no matter what you do and uh, the genetics play a role and it's, you got to find dogs that are, have these skills uh, that work really well. And it goes back to that saying, I say frequently, you have to get the dog you need, not the dog you want. Absolutely. So uh, I'm sure even that's another uh, added complication at first when people reach out to you guys is probably like, I saw on TV this particular <laughs> breed. Do you have that one in this color that does exactly what I want? I take it you guys yeah. run into the same issue? Yeah. We have people who want to come and, and see the dogs in the kennels to pick their dog. <laughs> oh, no. Um, and then we also train owner dogs. And so we have, like, lately we had a person who wanted us to train their nine-year-old German Shepherd. Oh. Um, and, or we have a person wanting us to train their Sharpay, 
Mm. We had a few Akitas. So um, do you guys, will you guys do that? Or do you generally go, yeah, that's not really going to work for this? Well, our, we, our, our cutoff age is five, which okay. is already pretty high. Yeah. <laughs> that's our cutoff age. Um, and then when it comes to breed, we try not to be breeders, but uh, we have now at least one breed that we will no longer take, uh, mm. the Akitas. We've tried a few and... But we, we mostly select them based on uh, temperament testing. Yes. I was going to so say they have to come we, to you for testing first before you say yes. Yeah. So we ask because some of our clients are far away. Some of them are, mm -hmm. you know, in, in on the West Coast or East Coast or uh, come from, from, you know, eight plus hours of driving. And so we ask for videos. Mm -hmm. and we temperament test them with videos. Um, and then once they're at our facility, we we are very clear that they may not go through the program. Oh, okay. We're yeah. taking them in, right. but at any time we can see behaviors that pop up mm -hmm. that are not, not okay with uh, being a service dog. Yep. And that's the way it goes. It's in the details, right? We, we go yeah. through this from time to time. People reach out and say, hey, my dog loves sniffing the house. I mean, it, it sniffs like sofa. It sniffs this. It sniffs. I know it's going to be a great detection dog. And then they bring it over or, Very or the cool. other thing is, yeah, yeah, they're like, my dog's crazy to play. It loves to play. And then all of a sudden it comes here, which is a new area. And then we throw out a toy and the dog's like, yeah, I could care less. That's or right. And motivation worried. is yeah. everything. In what yep. We do. yep. Yeah. Motivation is super important. So oh, no, yeah. there's a lot of parallels, which is really cool, which is why I'm glad I did this episode. So that way people could hear, um, because like I said, we, we do get, we get calls from time to time of people wanting to know, do we do this skill? And I refer them over to you and I say, not us, but I know somebody who does. And, um, it's, but it's really cool to see the parallels and I hope the listeners and the viewers, uh, got to have some good takeaways on this conversation. Cause there's like, there's, there's so much more this could go, but I think this is a good starting point and a good overview of, uh, you know, about the medical and, and detection disciplines and how they're used in this common everyday lifestyle of whether it be diabetic, seizure, um, PTSD, and others. Or that, others, yeah. yeah. Migraines um, are an, another big one as well. Which one was it? Migraines. Migraines, yeah. Natalie <laughs> needs that dog. <laughs> Natalie, Natalie goes through that. Wow, could you imagine it? maybe Alara? I'm on, a, I'm on a, a Facebook group for people that are like owner training dogs like that. Yeah. But, but the thing with that, generally, my understanding anyways, it, you know, I've only looked into it like kind of shallowly, but um, that typically would be a dog where you get aura, where it blocks, you start getting some visual disturbances mm. where like it would almost be similar to like a seizure where you kind of have to get to a safe spot because you're going to not be able to see and be totally disoriented. I don't have that. So no, no. <laughs> yours is just debilitating Mine pain. Mine just hurts a lot. Yeah. <laughs> you, you have to have a purpose, right? For yeah. the dog. Cause you're not going to spend that much time training the dog. If right. really, you know, you're going to have a migraine anyway. Yeah. And, and the dog is not going to do much for you. My yeah. dogs run away dog when I have a migraine. You. So, <laughs> But yeah, we do train a lot of owner dogs from all over the place because our, our classes are online. Oh. So somebody with, uh, with a dog that qualifies to be a service dog um, can certainly, you know, come come learn from us. And we'll, we'll walk them through the same process as all of our program dogs and teach them about 30 plus behaviors so that their dog ends up, you know, being not, not only having the tasks, but all the obedience part as well. For yeah. Service dogs. Yeah, I think that's a really interesting kind of side component is all of the obedience and 
all of that that you guys uh, have to put on the dog to be able to, you know, really do the, the public access work and then kind of balancing that with the detection stuff, which I think it, it makes it kind of interesting since it is, it's like detection on you. So you almost do maybe like the handler focus when the, that aspect actually kind of helps you. Mm -hmm. Whereas for our dogs, the handler focus kind of detracts, you know, from what we're trying mm -hmm. to get them to do. But I think that's a really interesting aspect, the, all the yeah. obedience that you need to you have, have the on the dog. Visual challenges as you have, right? Uh -huh. with, <laughs> the queuing and the, the handler, yeah, the handler queuing yeah. the dog. Yeah, we we want those dogs to succeed so much that it's hard not to. <laughs> that is for sure. <laughs> so, how do people find you? How do they get a hold of you? Tell us this stuff, and I'll, of course, I'll put it in the in the video here and in the show notes too. Well, our website is medicalmets.org, mm -hmm. and there's a ton of information on our website about the different programs. So we we place fully trained service dogs. We we can bring, take your, your owner dog, your dog in mm -hmm. uh, at our facility for six to eight months to train them for you, or we can teach you how to train your dog. Um, in all three cases, of course, there's, you know, the dog has to qualify, so we'll temperament test. But yep. uh, yeah, we have, we have all these different ways to help people from, from all over, really. And do you guys have like a Facebook or Instagram or anything like that? We do have a Facebook. Um, Instagram is a long story sure. for another time. <laughs> yeah, and, yeah. And, uh, it, Much harder uh, on there. Uh, I, yeah. Well, I, my Facebook account got hacked. And, oh, no. And deleted my Instagram account and oh. I have to restart Facebook from scratch. So, anyway. <laughs> yeah, not fun. Yeah, Thank you. Thank you, hackers. It. No. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. But, okay. So, I will put that in the show notes. Thank you for your time and coming on here. I'm sure this won't be the last time. Um, you know, I love doing these kind of crossover kind of episodes where it's not exactly what, you know, the audience is typically used to. And I hope everybody got to get some extra information and some good takeaways about the uh, medical detection type dogs and, and the services that they provide. And then some of the training aspects that were really unique and different. So thank you, thank you. Dr. Jennifer Cote for having us uh, take the time here with us to do this episode. And I very much look forward to um, having you back on again at a later date. And we'll pick some more topics on this. Thank you so much. Well, thank you both for having me. And I, I hope your cars are going to be okay. <laughs> yeah, I know, right. <laughs> we'll, we'll check on that now. <laughs> Good luck with the, with yeah. the weather. And thank you to all the listeners and viewers where you're listening to Canine's Talking Sense, where it's okay to be nosy. Oh, wrong one. 